Good morning. I am happier than a fruit bat in a peach orchard this morning. Uh, my grandson is here, and it's his first time to go to church. First of many, many, many times, I hope. I hope he grows to become a strong warrior for Christ. And uh, he's already asleep. He's the first one to fall asleep in my sermon. So, that's, uh, But I, I certainly appreciate uh, the prayer this morning, the, uh, the great song service, the announcements, and we appreciate all of you men coming forward and doing such a good job uh, serving the Lord this morning. And this morning I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach on the most unpopular subject in the world. So I'm going to let you think on that for just a minute. I want to tell you that I had uh, dinner last night with Jeff Archie. Y'all familiar with Jeff Archie? He's familiar with all of you, and he, he sends his warm greetings, and he wanted me to, to tell you all hello from him. He's doing an excellent job uh, over at the International Gospel Hour, and uh, him and his wife, Renita, uh, came over and had, had hamburgers, hot dogs with us last night. We did a little uh, cookout inside, because it's too cold to have an actual cookout, but uh, it, was, it was nice to see all of them, and he, he remembers uh, all of you by name, so he, he must be... Uh, very intimately familiar with this congregation, but he, he had many good things to say about uh, the White Oak Church, and he wanted me to, to tell you all hello from him. So I, I've fulfilled that obligation as well. I meant to mention that in class, but didn't quite get to it. So the most unpopular subject in the world, that's what I'm going to teach on, at great personal risk to myself, right? Because I'm teaching on an unpopular subject. But that's the name of this sermon and I always, I really like this, this sermon. I like announcing the name of that because although it's an unpopular subject, everybody wants to know what that subject is, right? And some might think as I announce that topic that I'm, I might be speaking on uh, giving, right? Giving's a, an unpopular topic, right? Uh, but that's not the case. That's not what I'm talking on. Uh, there are many who have hard hearts and broken minds who are good givers who give liberally, uh, sometimes for uh, the wrong reasons to be seen by others or whatever. But although poor giving can be a sign that God doesn't hold the power and place in your heart that he should, uh, many times we see those who have, who have poor spirits cast in much into the collection plate. Matthew 6.2 talks about that. Therefore, when you do charitable deeds... Don't just sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, right? So they were casting in much, but they had hard hearts. Or take the example of the poor widow, of course, who it's a very popular story. I teach on coins of the Bible, and I have all these different coins from the Bible. The cheapest coins that I have from that that time period are the poor widow's mites. And they are the ones that everybody wants to see. Because that story resonates with us, right? Out of her, her want, she gave all that she had. And others are casting it out of their surplus, but out of her want, she gave all that she had in Luke 21. So giving is not the most unpopular subject in the world. In fact, I don't know of, of any time in the Bible that I can think of where somebody preached on giving and then was killed or stoned to death. 
Yet, I know that this is the most unpopular topic because when the prophets of old preached on it, they were stoned, they were sawn in half, they were killed in various ways. When John the baptizer preached on it, he was imprisoned and eventually beheaded. When our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preached on it, he was crucified. And when the apostles preached on it, many times they were beaten imprisoned, martyred, and even stoned when Stephen preached on it. And that subject today is repentance. And why is it that repentance would be such a low popularity? Why why do people not like to learn about repentance, do you think? Well, I think it's simply this. We do not like to have our sins condemned, right? We don't really want to change. We don't want to have to change. Other people, we like to see other people's sins getting condemned and pointed out, right? We like to have other people, that those people need to change. But when our sins are exposed, when it's not other people that need it, it's us that needs to change, our hearts can turn against that, right? when it's pointed out that we're not necessarily doing what we should be doing or we're doing things that we should not be doing. There are passages of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 9.27 where it talks about how we should buffet our body and keep it under subjection or to mortify and crucify the flesh and the lust thereof from Romans 8. And verse 13, or to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We like to examine other people. We like it when sermons are, are, are given and, and we say, yeah, that person over there, that person really needed that sermon. I'm glad he taught on that. But when it, it's on us, not so much. And it occurs to me that there really are two ways uh, of getting through life. One way is to stop and think. And the other way is to stop thinking. Those are the two ways that people tend to get through life. And too many people have chosen to stop thinking. And so I want to encourage us today to instead stop and think. Stop and examine ourselves, examine our lives. And he woke up and he's paying attention because it must apply to him too. So that's good. We don't like to stop because when we stop, it creates silence. And in our world, we're uncomfortable with silence. This idea, idea that's out there, be still and know that I am God. It, it's, it's the time when God speaks to us. He speaks to us in that silence. Now, I'm not suggesting that he literally speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Those days are gone. He does not do that anymore. But he speaks to us in other ways, through his word, through our conscience, through the lives of other Christian brothers and sisters. So stopping for reflection can be dangerous, right? It's personal. It can wound us when we start reflecting on, on places that we need to improve and that we need to work. 
to stop and, and take stock of our lives, we can admit failure. We can admit fault. And we'd rather keep our head down and stop thinking. It's because sometimes it's easier to be a moral coward than it is to face up to places where we need to improve. It's easier to say that the temptation that we couldn't face up to today, maybe it just won't come back tomorrow. Maybe that that temptation, maybe God will just overlook that because I just can't get over that temptation. I keep falling to the same thing. And, and I fought it for a while, but I've, I've just kind of given up fighting those things now. But... You know, we are in the new year, and this is a time when people start to ask themselves, actually, we're, we're about the time now where New Year's resolutions have started to fail, and you might think, well, I gave up on that, I'm not going to lose 20 pounds this year, uh, that gym membership is wasted, or whatever it is, but sometimes it's a good time to take stock and say, what other resolutions, what resolutions do I need to make uh, this year? Can we make one of them? to confront whatever private sin you're personally struggling, struggling with and, and to beat it, to make the commitments to those things that will help you face that temptation and beat it, and beat it consistently and improve your life. Whatever sin it is, I, when I say think about that private sin, what is that sin that comes to your mind? We all have struggles. We all fight that war inside our mind, don't we? That's right. I agree. But what we're trying to do is get through that with the help of our brothers and sisters, with the help of our family, and change. We want to change to be a force of good. And sin in our lives is something that is keeping us from doing that. Second Corinthians 13.5, Paul says that examine yourselves where you be in the faith, prove your own selves, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Whew, we don't like a religion that calls us reprobates, do we? I mean, that's tough language. We'd rather have a religion that says, whatever it is you're doing, that's okay. You just keep trying your best and it'll be fine. No, he says you've got to examine yourselves. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to continue to improve. You can't stop thinking. You have to stop and think. You know, Enoch preached on this subject. Enoch is, is the first gospel preacher, if you will, mentioned. We learn about it in Jude 14 and 15. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I mean, it's hard language sometimes in the Bible, but Enoch preached on it all the way back, the seventh from Adam. Noah preached on it. Jesus preached on it. In Mark 1.15, from the very beginning of his ministry, he demanded that people repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel. So what is meant by repentance. Let's examine sort of a definition of repentance. Some have the idea that it involves some ritual of coming to the front during the invitation song. You come to the, the front pew, you shake hands with the preacher or with the elders or with the deacons or, or some of the men from the congregation. 
you fill out a card, you confess and, and ask for prayers, and that's repentance. All that is good, but that is not repentance. It leaves out the most important thing. Did you repent? Just going through some kind of form or motion or ritual uh, does not mean that you have repented. We pray sometimes in our our public prayers. I do this almost every time I lead a public prayer when I, I say, please forgive us for our sins or any wrong that we have done against you. And we ought to do that. I believe that. But some have the idea that this statement in prayer forgives the sins of all present without any need to repent. And that's not the case. That is not the case. Just because you pray in your private petitions to God, God, please forgive me of my sins without repentance that your sins are wiped away. You you start afresh. That's not so. Without repentance, our sins are, are still upon us. Some have the idea that if you are sorry for getting caught, that that's repentance. That when our sins are found out and we are ashamed or we are embarrassed and we confess the truth before men, some feel this is repentance, and, and it's not. Some have mistaken reformation of life, change of life as repentance. That's not repentance either. It is the result of repentance, but it is not repentance. There can be reformation of life. You can change how you are living without repentance. But to be proud of things you did when you were not a Christian is not repentance. You missed those days when you could do as you please. You're seeking after the flesh. And sin is sometimes fun, right? We're not going to lie and say that sin is always not fun. Sin is sometimes fun. It's never good, but it's sometimes fun. Are you ashamed of the time that you wasted and the trouble you caused for you and your family, for the church? Do you regret the wasted time when you could have done something productive for the church, something of value? And are you redeeming the time? And I always think of, of Paul, Saul Paul in the New Testament, right? Paul was not proud of the time that he spent persecuting the church. He said, look, I was set up great in the world. I was a rising star in Judaism, and all of that, everything that I had is garbage. I did many things against the name of Christ, and I'm ashamed of that waste of time, but I've repented, and I'm going about my father's business now, right? So the Bible uses the word repentance in some form 109 different times. What does it mean? Well, the root word means to have a change of mind, to have another mind, to have a change of heart. And it's a mental act of subjecting our will to the will of God. Godly sorrow can bring about this change of mind, but it is not the change of mind. Just being sorry is not the change of mind. We have got to change our mind. A change of life is the result of, It's a reformation of life, which is a continuing process. We're continually trying to get better, but that takes time. But you can change your mind in an instant. You can change your heart in an instant and then start to work on that change of life. 
Many times we make resolves to do better, but the reason those resolutions fail so often at the, at the beginning of the year is we haven't really changed our mind, right? And when it comes to actually doing the things like getting up out of bed early so that you can go work out to lose that 10 pounds or that 20 pounds, we haven't really changed our mind to do that. And so we're going to fail in the execution. Many times we face difficulties or we face disease. That's a time of reflection. If you're sitting in the hospital, right, and you're, you're facing something, a, a surgery or some kind of disease, that's a time of quiet reflection. We're facing our mortality. At those times, we make resolves. At the funeral of a loved one, we contemplate our mortality. We stop and we think and we make Resolves, But translating those into living is a wholly different matter. Changing our mind will result in a different manner of living. And we have to face up to our own private sin. We have to go into that dark room and spend some time in prayer with God and reflection on our spiritual state. If we don't have a sense of sin... In our life, if we, if we don't understand that there's sin in our life, it's because we lack a sense of God. It's because we don't stop to think and we've stopped thinking instead. Isaiah found himself in the presence of God. And he said, I am a man unclean and undone. When we are presented with the holiness of God, the first thing that comes to our mind is our sinful state, how we are not worthy to be in the presence of that holiness. And it's only through Jesus that we have access to the Lord. So how important is this topic, this unpopular topic of repentance? It's just this important. We cannot get to heaven without repentance. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said that unless you repent, you will all likewise Perish. He didn't say that unless you walk down the aisle and fill out a card, you'll perish. He said, repent. Acts 17.30, he now commands, commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 2.38, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter told them to what? Repent and be baptized, right? A chapter later, Acts 3.19, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 8.22, a brother in Christ has sinned and Peter says, repent therefore of thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven them. 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Revelation 2.5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove your candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. So how shall I do this? How shall I repent? First, we have to realize our condition. To do that, we have to become acquainted with the goodness of God. And Romans 2.4 sums that up really nicely. It says, Knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Understanding the goodness of God and then when we find ourselves in the presence of God, that that sin will be very much highlighted in our life. That's what we'll be thinking about when we're in the presence of God at judgment. 
Repentance is what that calls us to. Being sorry for and changing our mind. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. We look at this prophecy and we have peace because we've accepted it. Because he paid the price. Jesus accepted the penalty of our sin for us. You know, there's a, a true story about a Confederate band of raiders known as Quantrell's Raiders. You may have heard of them. They're in a couple of John Wayne movies, too, if you're into that sort of thing. And Quantrell was famous less for his deeds as a Confederate soldier and more for his infamous deeds as as a guerrilla fighter. He and his men raided Lawrence, Kansas, and they killed about 150 people. Uh, They even targeted citizens. They even killed an abolitionist abolitionist preacher. Uh, They didn't wear uniforms. They killed unarmed people. Some of those men were then captured. And because of the tactics they used, because they violated the rules of war, they didn't wear uniforms, they killed unarmed men, women. They were sentenced to be shot by firing squad. They lined up these men to be shot, and a man came out of the forest, out of the woods, and he walked up to the commanding officer. This was a young man, and he said, Look, I'm one of Quantrell's raiders. You, you just didn't catch me. But I'm, I'm guilty, just like these men. My parents are dead. I'm not married. I don't have a family. I have very few friends. And no one will, will miss me if I die. Please let me take the place of that older man that's on the firing squad. He has a, a lar- large family to care for. and He will be greatly missed if, if he dies. I mean, that's an odd request, isn't it? And the commanding officer said, well, this is highly unusual. But he met with his officers and he decided to grant that young man's request. He let that man stand in place of the older man who was about to get shot. And the older man hung around afterwards and he took the body of that young man back to his hometown and buried him in the cemetery. And he erected a marker that said, sacred to the memory of Willie Lear, he took my place. Now, that's, that's a moving story, right? He affected that man's life and his family's life for generations. But think about this. Willie Lear was guilty, right? If he had gotten caught, he would have been on the firing squad. He did a great act of sacrifice to, to replace that man. But Jesus, Jesus was guiltless. And it's us on the firing squad about to get shot, and he replaced all of us. He had no guilt. He had no sin. But he stood in our place and faced what we should have had to face. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bore our sins in his own body. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God let Christ be a sin offering for us. Now there is no hope for a heart that's not touched by that story. It's not touched by the, the greatest story ever told, by the, the one innocent who came and lived the perfect life. He gave up that home in heaven 
to stand in our place of condemnation. So that first step is to realize the goodness of God. The second step is, is mentioned in Acts chapter 2. As it's faith. They had faith in Jesus. They realized in Acts chapter 2 that they had killed the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. They had true faith that they had made a horrible mistake. And that convicted them of sin. John 16, 18, the Holy Spirit would convict men of sin. How does he do it? Through his word, through the sword of the Spirit. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Our hearts are touched with godly sorrow when we realize our state and what God had to do to allow us a method of salvation. And then that godly sorrow leads us to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul talks about this. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner. manner. A sorrow in our heart brings us to repent, brings us to change our heart and mind. And we turn to Calvary where we have hope and grace, where an innocent man died for us. It was our sins that put the stripes on his back. It was our sin that drove the nails in his hands and feet. It was our sins that mashed down the crown of thorns on his head. But it was love that kept him there. It was for us that he died. He could have stopped it at any moment. But he wanted to give us that opportunity for grace through repentance. The result of that realization that we have is the life that we live for the one that gave himself for us. It's so much different than joining a church, right? It's so much different than just walking down the aisle and making the confession. Are we just showing up? Have we checked out? Have we stopped thinking? You could have walked down the aisle a hundred times. You could have said in your mind a hundred times. You could have made resolutions a hundred times. But until you repent, until we change our minds, it is all really just for show. It's just a sham. Unless you realize what God has done for you, and we've realized our sorry state of hopelessness and the goodness of God, and our response to that, is a changed mind and a changed heart towards God to where we desire to be with God's people. We desire to do and go about God's work. We want to go out and be a good example for him that died for us so we can be a memorial each day for him. If not, we are just kidding ourselves. We haven't repented. We've got to renew our conviction to the truth and live for Christ each day. This morning, if any of this has has led you to a place in your, your heart and mind, I want you to think about Zacchaeus. He's one of the great examples of repentance in the New Testament. He realized his condition and that Jesus was his hope for salvation. 
And we look at Luke 19.8. He says, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. There's a desire for restitution, right? There's a desire to fix what he has broken in the past. Now, there are some sins which there could be no real restitution, right? Stephen was stoned to death, and Paul stood consenting unto his death, watching the coats of those who were throwing stones at him. He repented for it, but he couldn't fix it. He could go out and labor more because he had been such a great sinner, The jailer couldn't remove the stripes from Paul and Silas, but he could wash them. There's a desire to make that restitution. It's not an obligation, it's a desire, right? So who needs to repent? Everybody needs to repent. Luke 5.32, he came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. So worldly members of the church, those that that they hold the cause of Christ in the church in contempt, inactive members, in the church. I would that you were not hot or cold, but because you have chosen to be lukewarm, I will spew you out. I will vomit you out of my mouth. So I ask you this morning, you know, have you repented? Have you stopped to think about sin in your life? We we talk a lot about baptism. Was it the right type? Was it the right time? Was it immersion by water? Was it for the right reason? Was it the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? All of these are good things to consider. Baptism is very important. It's where you come in contact with the blood of Christ. But it has to come from a change of mind. There has to be repentance. Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. If you've never put on Christ in baptism, we would love to study with you and and talk to you about that and show you in the New Testament how to be saved, how through the blood of Christ we have access to the Father and we have remission of our sins. But if you've done that and you let the world creep in or you've never truly repented, I invite you today to stop and to think while we sing this song of encouragement in just a moment, to stop and think about the sin in your life and how you want to change for good. If that's the case, come this morning and make it known as we stand and sing.